0: soundly. So right now our listeners get 30% off Headspace's entire library of meditations. Just go to headspace.com slash sleeppod for 30% off your subscription. But only until May 12th. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash
1: sleeppod today. So basically what he did, it's quite amazing. He basically said to the team, and they sat him on the bench, he said, I don't want to play if I don't get the ball. Basically what he was saying is, I am less concerned about the team than I am about me. And that is the kind of thing human beings have the capacity to do that now they won the game made the shot and he apologized the point of the matter is we don't come out of the womb thinking about teams we come out of the womb thinking about ourselves and that's why these dysfunctions are natural so if we're not learning to trust you're listening each other to and Pat Lencioni, concert, to the
0: author of the five dysfunctions of a team and i got to tell you this what a great way to start the year with an interview with this person because This was likely one of the most mind blowing, valuable conversations I may have ever had with anybody related to business. He's the author of several books, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team being one of them, one that was very pertinent and relevant for my team as I started to grow it last year. And as you grow your business, there's gonna come a point, if you haven't gotten there already, where you're gonna need to work with other people. And knowing how to work with other people and these five things that we're gonna be discussing in this episode that could break you and ruin the business and you and just have everybody fighting against each other, these are so important. So what a way to start the year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Sit back, relax. This is going to be an amazing episode. Cue the intro. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's super competitive, mostly with the younger version of himself, Pat Flynn. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, session number 404, My name is Pat Flynn, here to help you make more money, save more time, and help more people too. And one of the things that can help us grow, expand our reach, make more money, better serve our, our audience, get more time back, is hiring a team. And I recently hired a team, and I've learned quite quickly just how important it is to learn not just about leadership, but about how a team functions and the things that can help the team grow, but also about the things that can help the team shrink, Uh, and, and shrink meaning just not working well together, people not being happy, people leaving. It just affects everything. And so this conversation with Patrick Lencioni, the author of The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, is so important, and it's a great way to start the year because he's gonna lay the foundation for what we need to know about as we begin to work with other people. So let's not wait any longer. Here he is, Pat Lencioni. Let's do this. Hey, Patrick, welcome to the SPI Podcast. Thanks for being here today.
1: It's great to have you. Actually, I do go by Pat, just like you. But probably for this one, we should call me Patrick and you Pat, so nobody gets <laughs> confused.
0: <laughs> well, you have a great name, and I'm excited to, to 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 interview another Patrick for once. But I'm just really excited more so because your book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, massively popular bestseller for years now. It had been required reading on my team, and it has helped out so much because building a team is something that's new to me. And I just wanted to unpack a lot of the principles in this book for all of our listeners today who are just starting their entrepreneurial journey, who are now building teams and just have no idea what they're doing.
1: Yeah. And life is a team sport more than ever.
0: It is. It is. And tell us a little bit about the origin story of this book in particular. Why did you sit down and and spend time writing this book in the first place?
1: So this was kind of an offshoot. My very first book was called The Five Temptations of a CEO. And it was, I wrote it just as I was starting my business. And I just worked with enough CEOs to see that there were these common mistakes they made. And so I wrote that book, we put it out there, people liked it. And what we realized was that it actually applied with a a few twists to teams, to the entire team. The same things that, that plagued, CEOs plagued their teams as a as a whole. So then I wrote, my third book was The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and that book sold, started to sell pretty well, and then it just built up and built up, and I think today it's selling as much or more than it ever has, and it's 17 years later.
0: That's so crazy. I mean, millions and millions of copies sold, and as a result, millions and millions of businesses functioning better And so let's unpack these five dysfunctions. People are likely hearing about this book for the first time, and I highly recommend you all get it. I I promise you it'll be worth the read. What do you mean by dysfunction of a team, and, and, and are there just five of them?
1: I think there are, actually. I think that there's lots of ways to build a team, but there's five ways to destroy them. And from a marketing standpoint, although we didn't do it from a marketing standpoint, that's the truth, but I remember when we titled it that, We said that uh, you know that's going to be more interesting to people. Like five dysfunctions, I want to know what they are. If somebody writes a book about how to have a perfect marriage, people are you know I'm I'm probably not going to. Pick that book up because I don't think there's such a thing, and I'm probably going to feel bad. But if somebody writes a book, Four Ways to Destroy Your Marriage Forever, I'm probably going to pick that one up and look at the table of contents at least to figure out what I need to, to, to think about. And there's five things that if we don't pay attention to those, Pat, our teams are going to fall apart. And if we do the opposite, if we can overcome them, then we can build a team. And so every team is dysfunctional. Every team, if it turns its back on something or, or takes its eye off the ball, so to speak, it's gonna devolve a little bit, just like every marriage. You and April love each other, but if you don't keep working on it, it can sour a little bit. And mm-hmm. so what we try to do is teach people, here's the things you need to constantly stay on top of if you want your team to function well.
0: Okay, so what are those things that we need to stay on top of? Because it seems like there's a billion things to take care of when we start bringing new people, new personalities, new new everything into, into our brand and, and handing off a lot of this work and letting people have access to our baby, our business. What's one of the dysfunctions we need to pay attention
1: to? So the first one, and and it's at the base of the pyramid that we teach for a reason, and that's a, it's the foundation. Is we have to have trust with the people we lead and we work with. And but trust is it sounds very simple, but trust is not predictive trust, which means I've known them for a long time, so I kind of know how they're going to act if I based on what I say or do. Mm-hmm. Really, what trust is, it's about vulnerability. It's about the kind of trust that comes about when two people or a group of people know that they will gladly say to one another, you know, I don't know the answer. I need help. I don't know how to do what you do. Teach me how to be like you. I admire you. Or I'm sorry, I was wrong yesterday. When, when you know that people on your team are completely vulnerable, genuinely, and that they are not going to cover something up or pretend to know something that they don't, you, it changes everything. But if you're working with people and there is not that kind of vulnerability-based trust, the limits of your success are going to be pretty low.
0: I mean, to me, trust is something that has to be earned. How do you teach this as a leader to your team? How do you earn trust with uh, and amongst e- each other? What are some ways that we can we can enable that?
1: Well, and it starts by by, and the leader has to go first. And if there's not really a clear leadership situation, then somebody's gonna have to take a leap of faith, but they're gonna do it by being vulnerable. So when we teach people how to, to build trust. And we do this with executive teams from big companies to small ones. What we do is we take them through a few exercises and it drastically, rapidly begins the trust building. We had them first just do something very simple and not touchy feely, but it's, it might sound like it. And that's, we just have them really quickly tell us where they grew up and, and what was their childhood like? What was the biggest challenge of their childhood, not being in, not their inner childhood, but just being a kid. Mm. And so they begin to reveal some things about themselves. And then we, We do something like the Myers-Briggs or DISC or Working Style, some sort of tool that allows them to, to very openly say, yeah, here's some strengths I have. Here's some weaknesses I have. They're not bad. They're not good. They're just who I am. And it's safe, but suddenly people are admitting things about themselves and giving other people permission to call them on that in a way that is safe and in a way that in the past they'd have felt reluctant. So what we're teaching them is how to be vulnerable. Tell us about who you are and what was hard about growing up. Tell us about... Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or whether you're a big picture thinker or a detail or you're you're a thinker or a feeler or a you know, all these things. And suddenly people are reading descriptions of themselves to their peers and saying, Oh my gosh, I will I'm I can actually be vulnerable. And these people won't take advantage of me. They're gonna they're gonna be okay with that.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that's the big piece. It's like it's okay to be vulnerable because I can imagine some leaders, especially coming from certain backgrounds, positioning themselves as always being the perfect leader and only sharing the things that are good and those kinds of things. How do, you, how do you sell vulnerability to somebody who's not often comfortable or perhaps has never even shared that kind of stuff
1: before? You know, what we just explained is, and, and, and the funny thing about it is when you ask them about their experience with other leaders, they agree. So it's hard to deny. It's <laughs> like, do you trust a leader who never admits they're wrong? Do right. you trust a leader who can't apologize, who can't acknowledge when you have a better idea than them, who can't ask for help? And they're immediately like, "No. In fact, I don't like working for." And it's like exactly. Yeah. So so I, I we it's funny because people do, you know, they question it just a little bit, but after a very short explanation they're like, "You're totally right." If I want these people to trust me and if I want them to be vulnerable with each other, how can I not do this myself?
0: That makes sense. And- okay, so the first dysfunction
1: is just the team does not trust each other. Lack of trust, which which stems from a lack of wanting to be vulnerable with each other.
0: A follow-up question on that, I know from my own personal experience, when somebody does something that they maybe just doesn't align and and, and they lose trust for a little bit, it's hard to gain that trust back. Are there strategies for, and and this is for people who are just worried about being perfect and and whatnot, and, and I know you don't have to be perfect, but when you make a mistake, what might be the best strategy for every team member to sort of get trust back if it was lost?
1: Well, the, the thing is, and, and and this is what life is about, you have to be a little uncomfortable, but it's so liberating. It's like we've sat with people in a team and had them apologize. We we had a team of people that, that these two guys didn't like each other, and we knew that. And when they went through the Myers-Briggs, it explained a lot of it. <laughs> and the one guy read his type, and the other guy said, Wait, read that again. And he read it, and he goes, "So you don't do that to piss me off?" And the guy said, "No, I, this is just how I am." And like we said, that's how God wired him. And he's like, "Oh wow, would you like me to help you with that?" And the guy was like, had tears in his eyes. I would love for you to help me with this. So, so what, what we talk about is, you know, the prayer of Saint Francis is seek to understand more than to be understood. We tell people to avoid the fundamental attribution error, which is where we attribute other people's behaviors that frustrate us to their character but then we give ourselves a break when we frustrate others and attribute it to our environment and just by doing that we allow people to apologize for things that have happened in the past to explain it and to and it's a it's quite a liberating and and joyful experience to watch people that were frustrated by each other learn how to say oh i guess i guess we can get over that what you can't do is ignore it if there's been trust broken in the past you have to deal with it but we you can do it in a very positive way it's uncomfortable but not for very long
0: it sounds like with your clients who work with you you have them go through these tests and myers-briggs and i know a lot of people kind of scoff at those like oh no it's just another personality test but it seems like it's an absolutely massively important thing especially when you start working with other people personally i've had experience with myers-briggs but also very very radically changing my life was the enneagram in both relationships with my team and my wife and so are you a fan of, of the Enneagram as well? Or are there like if a person had to take one or two, which ones would you recommend?
1: Well, you know what I would say is this, and I, I know of the Enneagram and we don't use it in our practice, but as long as it's accurate and it, see, the, the, the point is not what the tool is. The point is it, it has to be accurate, but does it allow two people or a group of people to start speaking honestly about themselves, their strengths and their weaknesses without feeling judged? So like I was with a group, I was with 800 people yesterday and I had just 20 minutes to do something with all these people. So I did use this thing called working styles, which just says, do you, are you a tell oriented person or ask oriented person? Are you a task or people? And it's, it's very easy. And in 10 minutes, people can look up and go, oh, I'm a driver. Another person go, oh, I'm an amiable. And then we can joke about it, and people can talk about it. And all we're trying to do is break down the idea that they can't admit when they're wrong. They can't admit what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. So any tool that gets at that is going to do that. And, and like we, we tell people, hey, Myers-Briggs doesn't define you, but it certainly gives people an understanding of how you're going to approach a problem differently than they will. And as long as they can begin, like, like we, we'll have them read, like, I'm, a, a person, I'm an ENFP, for instance. So the, the, my, I don't focus very easily. I jump around. I, I have a little bit of ADD. That's what ENFPs often do. We, we're kind of all over the map. You know, the prayer is, God, help me to focus more. Oh, look, a bird on the things I need to do. <laughs> and when people know that about me, they can call me on it. And mm-hmm. if somebody in a meeting says, hey, you're not focusing, I don't go, well, that's, how dare you say that? I'm like, well, thank you. Cause you know, that's my challenge. And now you're helping me with that. And yesterday when I, when I blew this thing, it's because of that. And I should, that's not a good excuse. I'm going to work on it. If I don't have that vocabulary, Pat, with the people I work with, if we don't have any construct for understanding our strengths and weaknesses, making a comment about their behavior or their performance is going to feel very judgmental. And so whether it's the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs, as long as it's accurate and it allows a person to be honest about who they are it works but we are not believers that one of these tools you know defines, defines a person's you. life and so i like it when people are kind of cynical or skeptical about that and i go no just just play with us here don't worry we're not going to put you in too narrow of a box right and right. and i love overcoming the skeptics and the cynics because then when they understand it they're they're bought in more than anybody
0: you're right i mean that's what happened with the enneagram for me it's the common language that we can now use when we're sharing with each other and we're resolving issues and stuff, that that's been super helpful. Thank you for that. Right. That's absolutely huge. Sure. So trust and vulnerability—you
1: know—the lack of trust, if you will. Number and without one. that, the next one is impossible to overcome. And the next one is the fear of conflict. I love talking about this because we live in a world. I mean, you and I are both out here in California. There's different regions that have different kind, but we just live in a world that says never disagree, always affirm people, always be nice, and. We don't grow that way, and teams don't grow that way. Now, the reason why trust is important, because if you don't have vulnerability-based trust, Pat, with somebody, conflict is just politics. Now, I I don't trust them. I don't think they're going to admit when they're wrong. I don't know if they're going to acknowledge if I have a better answer. I better think about the way I say things in order to manipulate the situation and win. But when you do have vulnerability-based trust, when two people or a group of people are essentially buck naked with each other about who they are— Conflict becomes nothing but the pursuit of truth or the best possible answer. It's a great thing. Conflict is fantastic when there is trust. And teams that can't engage in conflict suffer and their decisions are always suboptimal because conflict is how we get at the truth. Mm -hmm. And if people aren't willing to honestly dialogue and honestly push on each other, it's, you know this with you and April in your marriage. There is not a marriage in the world where where the people don't, argue sometimes. But they argue in the pursuit of, you know, what's the best thing to do for the kids? And if we disagree, let's argue until one of us convinces the other. And that's a good thing. Teams that don't argue actually find, I find that when they don't disagree around issues, that it ferments into disagreement around people. And that gets really, really dangerous.
0: I think one scenario that our audience can really resonate with related to the fear of conflict and just how detrimental that can be is a lot of a lot of the audience is blogging or podcasting and We often try to play middle ground and not want to upset any particular party or we don't want to be too bold with what we say because we worry about pushback or conflict. But obviously you can't grow unless you take those bold leaps and those bold actions and perhaps step out of your comfort zone. You just kind of are complacent. And when you're complacent, you kind of just stay where you're at. So as you're trying to grow your business or trying to grow your blog, playing the I fear conflict game is going to keep you where you're at. And this is exactly in your team as well. So, how
1: and online conflict devolves into. Confirming what somebody else says or being really mean. And conflict isn't about meanness. Conflict is about honestly respecting a person enough to say, "I think your idea is wrong, and here's why." But I'm willing to listen. And if you if you convince me that you're right, I'll be the first to acknowledge that. And when a society that doesn't have conflict really suffers. And it's 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 happening now. People will say, "Well, there's all kinds of conflict. It's usually anonymous, mean-spirited shots across the bow, right. as opposed to dialogue
0: Right. It's a it's a YouTube comment usually. Is that what we're, <laughs> we're fearing? How does one encourage a team to seek conflict? It almost seems like conf- because you say conflict is good, it's like let's look for opportunities where there's conflict so we can resolve and, and improve. What language do you give your your team? How do you how do you prepare them? Like, is this a, like a conflict meeting that happens, or how, how might one bring this up in, in a way in, the, in their team?
1: It's a great question. The first thing we do is we say we went, go back to that Myers Briggs and we say, so what does your personality? say about your likeliness to engage in conflict. We always say, what is your family? What was it like growing up in your family? You know, in my family, I'm Italian and Irish. We fought, every, you know, argued every day. <laughs> my wife's family didn't ever argue. <laughs> yes, She's a convert though. She's learned how to argue really well. <laughs> but you know how converts are. They're more into it than people born into it. But, but the we you just talk about that as a team. And some people are going to say, in my cultural, you know, my, some people might say, I'm from a country where you just don't do that. And some people say, well, we do it a lot. So you have to have that conversation. And then what we say is, Here's the deal. First of all, everybody does have to agree that good conflict is important. And once they do that, then what the leader has to do, or team members, is that when they finally start to engage in conflict, usually around something very safe, but they're still going to feel very uncomfortable because they don't, it's going to be minor, but they're going to feel uncomfortable, that's when people have to do something countercultural and interrupt them in the middle of a conflict and go, hey, hey, wait, 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 you guys, you know this argument, this, this discussion you're having right here? This is exactly what we need to have more of. Keep going. Don't feel bad. Now, that sounds crazy, Pat, but I've said that to Fortune 500 executives because even in the, the the boardrooms of big companies, people don't argue well. They feel uncomfortable. And I have to interrupt them and say, I know you guys look like you're feeling a little uncomfortable with this conversation, but this is exactly what your team needs. Keep going. And they will drain away their feelings of guilt or, or fear that they're doing something wrong and re-engage in that conversation without it. So what we call it is real-time permission. So if you're on a team or you have a vendor that you're working closely with and you want to have a team-like relationship with them, just let them know, say, hey, I think it's really important that we argue, and it's probably going to be a little uncomfortable. And then the first time it happens, just stop and go, hey, this is really productive. I really like this. And people need that in order – over time, after you do that four or five times, you're going to start getting more comfortable with it, and it's going to happen quickly without fear of something being wrong.
0: I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on times where team members on my team uh, and even with me have uh, had arguments and they're always very civil. Obviously, we respect each other. We trust each other. But those have always led to amazing breakthroughs. And I think that just allowing yourself to feel comfortable and, and even welcoming it in a controlled manner, like you said, is huge. So th- th- thank, thank you for that. Let's, let's keep going. We have a few more uh, dysfunctions. Obviously, go get the book, read more into it. The examples, the stories, amazing. What's number three?
1: The number three is and conflict is necessary in order to avoid the third dysfunction, which is the inability of a team to commit. So if you don't have conflict, you're not going to get people that are discussing something to actually commit to what you've decided on. You're, what they're going to do, and this is what normally happens, is they passively commit. Nobody disagreed. Nobody really passionately argued. So at the end of the meeting, they nod their head, they smile, they leave, and they're not really supportive of the idea. And at best, they're going to short-arm things or pretend to be involved, but they're really not going to commit. And what we say is this, if your team cannot, at the end of a conversation, completely commit and buy into that decision, that idea is not going to work. It doesn't matter what the quality of the idea is, if people haven't committed, it doesn't work. See, and this is where conflict comes in, because what we say is if people don't weigh in on a decision, they're not going to buy into that decision. Mm -hmm. And that's not an argument for consensus, though. I hate consensus. If you wait for consensus, you're going to make decisions that are too slow and probably mutually disagreeable to everyone. The point here is everybody on a team needs to weigh in. They need to engage in that conflict so that at the end of their discussion, the leader or someone on that team can break the tie and say, okay, this is the answer. And I realize not everybody here agreed completely, but I've listened to you all. We know where you're coming from. You might even be right, but we need everybody to commit. And the best organizations, whether it's a small business, whether it's a big organization, whether it's military sports, a church, when people can disagree and then commit, and that's something that Andy Grove at Intel pioneered the idea. They had this thing. They said, disagree and commit. Go to a meeting and have it out. At the end of the meeting, there's nothing left to say in the hallway. There's no back channel chatter online or in the parking lot. But that requires that you have conflict so that you know everybody on the team is committed.
0: How, like, can you define commitment? Does that mean just buying into the to what was discussed? And, and obviously this all relates to trust, right? If a, if a leader yeah. goes, hey, I've listened exactly. to you and you may be right, but hey, I'm taking this, I'm the leader, trust me on this. You commit, but what is that internally for a team member who may think otherwise, what does commitment really mean to them?
1: Yeah, what it means is you know that they're gonna do everything they can to make it work. They're not gonna hold anything back. They are going to, and I like to say this, two companies, everybody does bad forensic analysis of, of businesses that succeed. They'll look at one and the one that succeeded, they'll go, well, they were smarter. They had a better idea. The truth is one company can beat another with a worse idea that people really rallied around than one that had a better idea that people actually didn't commit to. I've heard this in the military. People say, you know, I think it was General Patton who said a good plan, and he said violently executed, which means people really go do it, is better than a better plan where people aren't on the same page. And yet we live in a world that people think everything is decision science, and they think like, well, the best idea always wins. It's like, nah, the the, the idea that people rally around is going to outdo the one that people – are tepid about. And so when we talk about commitment, we p- talk about people leaving a room and saying, I am fully on board and I will do what is necessary to make this work.
0: How do you avoid, and I'm imagining, and I, kn- I know this from personal experience working with people who have companies where there's, uh, and I don't want to stereotype, but you know, a lot of sort of perhaps those in the younger generation who may feel more entitled or who may uh, you know, have this con- conflict, but then use that, Conflict as weaponry to say something like if something didn't work, even though they committed to it, they followed the leader, they might hold a grudge. They might go, "I told you so," or "I knew that wouldn't work," and it just leads to just more dysfunction. How how might one sort of deal with or or manage that?
1: You know, and I think if you think about what it is, is if they have vulnerability based trust, they're not going to be trying to score points. They're going to say, "I know." that we might make mistakes. And I'm speaking out about what this answer might be. I like to say this, if I'm the leader of a team and I have to break a tie, and two people on my team think the answer should be A, and two thinks it should be B, and I decide on A, I turn to the people on B, and I say, you might be right, I might be wrong on this. But we've all listened about, we've all talked about it, I've heard what you had to say, and, and based on my wisdom or my role, we're gonna go with A. And so if B turns out to be right, those people don't come back and go, see, I told you. They go, yeah, we were there for that meeting. You listened to us. And okay, we were right, but we, we supported this anyway. I think the thing is, mm. when you have vulnerability-based trust, there's no joy in proving someone wrong. Right, right. And so it, it does go back to that trust. And that's the thing. A lot of people will say, I want to build, I want to um, get results or I want to commit to decisions. It's like if you don't trust each other, it's just not real.
0: Perfect. Thank you for that. Let's move on. Number four. What is dysfunction number four?
1: Dysfunction number four is when we commit to decisions, and this is the biggest problem on most teams. We have an online team assessment, uh-huh. Pat, that people fill out. It takes them like a half hour, and everybody on a team fills it out. When they're done, they get scores back, colors, green, yellow, and red on the five dysfunctions that says these are probably the areas where you struggle where you're okay or where you do really well. And this is the one that has the most red, and, and that is the fourth dysfunction is teams that are unwilling to hold each other accountable. When human beings on a team cannot turn to one of their peers and say, hey, that's not good enough, or I don't think that's what we agreed to, or we need more from you in this area, when people on a team cannot hold each other accountable, they're not going to succeed. And people in society, even more than accountability, Pat – people don't like to hold each other accountable. I mean, even more than conflict, people don't like to hold each other accountable because they just feel like, well, I'm never supposed to tell somebody that I'm not affirming them. But on a team, when you have real vulnerability-based trust and people have argued about a decision and you've committed to that decision, then people are going to be far more likely to say, hey, that's not what we talked about. Or, hey, you need to do better on this or we're not going to make it. Accountability is so critical on a team Now, notice what I said, though, Pat. I I said peer accountability. I didn't say the leader holding people accountable. Most people think that the leader should be the primary source of accountability on a team, and that's not true. Peers are much better sources of accountability. The leader, however, has to be the ultimate source. People need to know that someone at some point, the leader is going to hold people accountable, and when you know that, then you're much more likely to turn to a peer and say, okay, I'll do this for you. But if the leader is like me, Pat, I'm what technical people would call a wuss. <laughs> I don't like to hold people accountable. And when leaders don't like to hold people accountable, peers are not going to do it for one another. This is one of the biggest things teams need to learn how to do is to relish the thought of somebody saying, you need to do better at this.
0: It's pretty amazing because I think we all know how important accountability is for ourselves. We like we need help. We need a friend to go to the gym with. We need somebody to tell yeah. us to do this, but then we don't, Consider how we might be able to provide that for others too. Is this simply the leader giving permission for that to happen,
1: or or how can you encourage this? You know, let me tell you what it was for me because I was this was my big struggle as a parent too. You know, I want people to like me. I, I like I like to tell people positive things, and what I came to realize one day, Pat, and this was the breakthrough, is that not holding someone accountable is actually an act of selfishness. I thought it was an act of mercy. Like, you know, they didn't do a very good job. I just won't say anything to them because I don't want them to feel bad. One day I realized, wait a second, I'm the one who doesn't want to feel bad because they don't benefit from not hearing. (laughs) What I tell managers and people on teams is, if you love the people you work with, and I hope you do, even if some days you don't like them, I hope you love them, then you owe it to them to tell them how to get better because you're never going to feel good about yourself when you didn't tell them. And then later it bites them in the butt in their career. And you're like, well, at least I didn't make them feel a little bit uncomfortable that day.
0: That's huge. I mean, it's just that simple mindset shift changes everything. Everything. Everything.
1: It's an act of love far more to tell somebody, hey, here's something you could do better than it is to to affirm somebody in something good or worse yet, of course, in something that's not good. So like I I go to church, I tell priests that, I I do a lot of work with priests and ministers and stuff. And I tell priests like, you know what people tell you after church when you don't give a good homily? And they're like, what? They say, nice homily. That was great, yeah. (laughs) And that's not good. That's not love. What we would think, be the like, love version nice. of that? I've done it a couple times, Pat. It's not easy to do. I've left mass and prayed about it and said, oh gosh, I have to tell. And I've pulled a priest aside after mass and said, hey, father, I just want to tell you, I, I, I tell them like, I liked this and I like this, whatever I like. I said, but I think there's something you could do better. And one guy, one guy, I didn't, gave me a huge hug and said, nobody ever tells me this. And the other guy smiled really big and shook my hand and said, thank you so much. We don't develop strong relationships with people that we don't try to make better. But in our society, we are taught, don't ever have an uncomfortable moment. Don't ever push somebody out of their comfort zone. Don't Mm -hmm. ever allow someone to potentially judge you in the short term for being a little too tough on them. So we end up, you know, in the Bible, it talks about iron sharpens iron. People that don't even know that came from the Bible know what that means. And most people I find would rather have a pillow fight. (laughs) You know, but so iron cool. sharpens iron. My wife and I sharpen each other by pushing on each other in love. And we should do that at work too.
0: Too many of us are having pillow fights, that's for sure. You know, anyway. And then on the receiving end of accountability, how do we position ourselves to openly accept and not, again, feel like we're being targeted or feeling like we're just not doing great work and ashamed of ourselves?
1: Well, there's layers to that one. I mean, some of that goes to, to just healing the wounds we have that we don't feel ashamed for not being perfect. But one of the things we can do on a team is just put ourselves in a position to be held accountable. Because if a leader wants their team to receive good feedback, the best thing they can do is receive it themselves. In fact, invite it. I say this to my kids a lot. And I said, listen, I know I'm not your your friend. I mean, I love you. And I, I, that's my problem. I try to be like their friend sometimes. But I say, I'm not your peer. But I really do want to know if there's things you think I could do to be a better dad. Because, and if I think when they know that I'm like, and when they say, you know, dad, sometimes when friends come over, you do this. And I'm like, oh man, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm going to really work on that. Think how much easier it is when I say to them, hey, you know something? I need you to work on this. They don't look at dad as, well, he's never wrong. He never admits he's wrong. He never apologizes. He never takes my feedback. Why should I take his? The same happens at work. So that leader or that peer who's like, oh, yeah, I, I love it when you tell me things I need to improve on. That only makes the whole team do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're no longer a hypocrite at that yep. point. Yeah. Fantastic. We're close to the end of the roadmap here. What is the fifth and final dysfunction?
1: The last dysfunction of team is one that's going to sound strange, but it's that When teams don't focus on the collective results, it's it's the inattention to results. Now, people go, well, what are you paying attention to if not results? Well, it could be their own results. It could be my own department, my own budget, my own career, my own needs. What it is is if we're on a team, we have to be, all of us, concerned about the collective good of the team. And even if we divide up the responsibilities, I can't say, well, my area, my part of the boat's not sinking. It's your part of the boat. Uh-huh. A team realizes that we got one boat and if we have to make sacrifices for one another, we have to do what's in the best interest of the whole team. And yet there's lots of examples, Pat, in society where this doesn't happen. You know, and I love to talk about Scottie Pippen, the, the player for the Chicago Bulls years ago. You're a young guy, but yeah, no, one of my favorite players. All right. So he he was played with, with Jordan and when Jordan left the team, he retired. Pippen became the leader of the team. And at the end of the year, they were still awesome. They had a great team. And, and the, they played in the playoffs against one of their hated rivals. And it, during that game, they were tied with a few seconds left to go in the game. And the coach, Phil Jackson, a great coach, designed a play to go to one of the other players who would have a better chance to make the shot. And Pippen refused to go in the game because he didn't get the ball. So basically what he did, it's quite amazing. He basically said to the team, and they set him on the bench, he said, I don't want to play if I don't get the ball. Basically what he was saying is, I am less concerned about the team than I am about me. And that is the kind of thing, human beings have the capacity to do that. Now, they, they won the game, made the shot, and he apologized. The point of the matter is we don't come out of the womb thinking about teams. We come out of the womb thinking about ourselves. And that's why these dysfunctions are natural. So if we're not learning to trust each other and to engage in good conflict and to commit to decisions and hold each other accountable, we are not going to get the results we want. It's only when we all know. That when somebody does something selfish or somebody does something not for the best interest of the team, that people are going to say, wait, wait, wait a second. That's not okay. And that is an act of love that leads to results. Because the truth of the matter is, great teams produce better results. That's the measure. They don't win every game. They don't make their number every single time. But over time, the, the organizations, whether it's tiny or, or large, that work like a team, they, they win. And that's what this is all about. The proof is really in the pudding. The personal results still are
0: important, though, right? It's just putting the team first before personal is is really the goal.
1: Right. And yeah, well, obviously, because if you put the team's results first, you have to produce what you do, but you have to also be willing to give things up. So one of the things we like to say is if we were looking at a larger company, if I went to the head of marketing and I said, listen, listen. What's your number one team? Is it the marketing department that works for you or is it the team you're on with the CEO? Many, many, many people in, in that role would say, with really good intentions, would say, listen, Pat, I work with the marketing department. I sit near them. I hired them. I, I spent my career in marketing. I love marketing. They would probably be my number one team. But this one's a close second. That doesn't work. That person has to be competent in what they do, but they have to get together with the CEO and decide if I have to give up resources, if I have to give up budget, if I have to spend time in somebody else's area and that produces a better result for the team, then that's what I'm going to do. It doesn't mean I'm still, I'm going to be bad in my area. I mean, like this is football season. And I like to say that, you know, the defensive coordinator has to be willing to give up draft picks or players or attention for the offense, if that's how they're going to win, if the head coach punishes him for doing that and says, well, your defensive stats were down. And he says, I know it because I did this for the good of the team. The leader has to recognize, I want people that are going to do anything for the whole team. So if we hold people accountable for their numbers or their performance without any regard for the fact that they should be making sacrifices for others, then we're making it impossible for them to be team players. So when we go to when I work with companies, Pat, I I tell them your compensation should be tied primarily to the outcome of the entire team, not to their own individual areas, because otherwise we're just incenting them to live in silos. That's huge. So individual performance is really important, but it can't be more important than doing what's right for the whole team.
0: If a team happens to be struggling with multiple dysfunctions at once, somebody's listening to this or in the future, you know, they see that there's a lack of commitment, there's inattention to results, uh, the avoidance of accountability—like there's multiple things. Where where might you suggest a person, a leader, go to start to make things a little bit better? Is it is is there one over another? I mean, I know trust Definitely obviously is the, one is, over another. Is the most go important. to the
1: bottom because what happens is people say we don't have accountability on our team, and it's like whoa whoa whoa. Before you decide that, go below and mm. look at the one just before it. But here's the thing: what we always say is this. If you took our team assessment and you were green on trust and red on all the others, we would say, even still, do anything you can to improve trust. (laughs) Because when trust is strong, you have a really good chance at overcoming the others. But when trust is weak at all, it's going to come out. It it, it really is one of those things. If people listening, if they do anything, whether they're talking about working on a small team and they're working with a vendor or a virtual partner, build really strong levels of interpersonal trust with that person. Everything else gets exponentially easier.
0: How often in your work do you find that the root cause of the problem is actually the leader him him or herself, and how do you begin to get the leader to sort of accept feedback if they're just not playing the game correctly?
1: It's a great question, and one of the most frequent questions I get and and here's what we say because people say it, but it's the leader it's the leader here's what here's what I would say first of all is. Don't assume that the leader is leading the way he or she wants to. We always assume like, well, they're doing everything intentionally. They've thought this through, and they're confident that the way they're doing this is the right way. Be a hero and and be the person who kindly and goes and tells the truth to that leader. In my career, Pat, before I started my own firm at the Table Group, I was the guy that people would shove in the CEO's office and say, you tell him. And I was like, why? And they go, because he listens to you. I didn't work for the CEO and his direct reports would say, you tell him. And it was, I think, because I would go in there with empathy and respect, but with the willingness to tell the truth to the leader. And as a result of that, he trusted me. And that is what people need. And so if you're on a team and you're like, gosh, the the leader just doesn't get this. They don't want to do this. Be that one to say, you know, I'm going to go to them and humbly Share with them that I don't think I could do their job or that I'm condescending to them. Here's some things I think you could do that would really help, and I think you would benefit from it and everybody else would, and I'm willing to help you. More times than not, they're gonna listen and appreciate that, and that's a fantastic thing to do. Quite often, they're gonna ignore you, and at least you know, they don't fire you for that. When I mean, and because I, I like to joke around and say, one out of three times, you'll get fired you're not going to get fired for telling the leader the kind truth. You might find that they really are committed to the way they're doing things and they're not going to change. Now you know. Now you know. You know the, the serenity prayer. It's like the God give me the courage to change the things I can, the, the patience to accept the things I can, not and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, if you haven't gone and tried to help that leader, you don't know what their limits are. And if you go there and, and that person goes, no, I love doing it this way. I'm not going to change the way I do it. And this is how it works. Now you go. Good, now I know that I can start to think about whether I want to accept this or move on. What we shouldn't do is go, well, I think it's all about the leader. He or she doesn't want to change. I'm not going to say anything. Nobody feels good about that.
0: No, thank you, Pat. And this sure. has been an incredible conversation. I just want to ask you one final question to get a sense of just the kinds of conflicts that potentially teams might have. Would you mind sort of giving us an inside look at a conflict that you've had to help manage no names, no companies. I just want to know what the potential conflict was about and then ultimately what needed to happen in order for that conflict to be resolved.
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll share one with you. I mean, there's so many and I'm, I'm really terrible at recalling them, but just recently I had one. So I worked with an organization and there were three founders and they were friends and they started this business and had been going for a while and they, they had other jobs too. So it wasn't necessarily a second you know, passive income. They were trying to start a startup but they all had other jobs too. And um, and some high profile people. And one guy kind of checked out and started doing another job and he didn't do anything for a year and a half. And I will tell you, they went on Shark Tank and they didn't get a deal, but they got some momentum. And one guy just checked out and the other two guys were working like dogs. Yeah. Well, the two guys that were working like dogs were making progress. And what they found is that the other guy his attitude and his, the, his cultural approach to things didn't work. Two guys were making, getting a lot more done than three did when the guy was involved. But the guy wouldn't even check in. He didn't even ask. So we got together and said, you know, what are we going to do here? And the, the conflict was they needed to get the guy to recognize, I haven't been contributing. And he really didn't want to do that. And they had to have a very, very difficult conversation about the fact that they, there was a, a breakdown of trust there. This guy was not going to acknowledge it and be, and be vulnerable, right. and they had to confront him and say, your behavior doesn't match the culture we want, and we need you to not participate. And what happened was those guys realized without that trust, they were not going to be able to have the level of conflict, make decisions, commit to those, execute, hold people accountable, because their, their friend, for whatever reason, good guy, just was not willing to be vulnerable and be held accountable. Did they buy them out or? Well, that's what they're figuring out right now. Okay. They're figuring out how to do that because it's still a very future-oriented business. It's a really neat, I'd love to tell people that, but I can't because, and so they haven't come into the money yet, although they, they have some promise. So they're trying to figure out how do we value it and what would be fair to this guy, but sure. we've done a lot of the work. I mean, it's difficult. And what it shows is without vulnerability, that person was not able to be vulnerable. He wasn't able to say, I know I've let you guys down or I know I've checked out. I know that I've been a problem and that makes it so difficult. And so these guys said we have to move him on because if he stays and we have to continue to live with that lack of vulnerability, we're never going to get this done.
0: Could there have been a way to avoid this situation with this team? Like, are there conversations that potentially could have have happened earlier or is this sometimes unavoidable to, to get to this point and then you kind of resolve it after that?
1: It's a great question. And the answer is Oftentimes, it's like well, we should have talked about this sooner and right. we still could. And maybe had they done that, but I actually think that this one guy is he just really struggles with admitting when he's wrong. And I've met, I've run into a number of executives like that. It's just too painful for them to say, I don't, I'm sorry, or maybe I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. And when you have a person that can't do that, it's a little crazy making. And, and that's why it's so important that when you hire, you hire people. I wrote another book called The Ideal Team Player. And basically, it's there's three qualities that you have to have to be to be able to overcome the five dysfunctions, and one of them is humility. The other two, by the way, just for your listeners, are humble, hungry, and smart. If they're humble, it means they'll, they'll admit when they're wrong and they're not ego-driven. Hungry means they work really hard. Smart means interpersonally smart, not all intellectually. They know what, how their words and actions affect people. But without humility, Pat, a person is not going to be a good team player. Ego-driven people do not make team players. Wow,
0: this was one of the most valuable conversations uh, I've ever had. And I'm so thankful to have captured it and shared it for everybody.
1: Nice of you to say.
0: Yeah, No, seriously, thank you. And it's it's very pertinent in time for me building new teams and, and just thank you again for this. Where might people go? Where would you recommend they go to learn more from you and and obviously pick up the book? With, is there a recommended place to go to for that?
1: Yeah, a couple. Of, I mean, you can buy the book wherever books are sold. Our, we have a website that we just redid. I think you might have helped us with that, Pat. I don't know if we asked you about that, but it's table group like kitchen table tablegroup.com. And we have all kinds of free stuff, and you can figure out what we do, and if there's a way we can help you. And but the other thing is, we this is something you definitely helped. us is we started a podcast uh, four months ago called At the Table with Patrick Lynchon. At the Table with Patrick Lynchon, and we just talk about the world of work and how teamwork, leadership employee engagement, just work in general. And so if people like that, we also started one, we do two now, one, a smaller one called Sports Culture, where we talk about how culture, organizational culture influences sports. And so we talk a lot about what's going on in the world of sports. People just called and say, you gotta do one about that. So you cool. can, there's another one called Sports Culture.
0: Well, we'll put all the links in the show notes for everybody. Pat, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're a busy guy and helping out so many other companies. And thanks for helping all of us who are here listening on the other end. We appreciate well, you.
1: And Pat, thanks for helping my company again. You've done a lot for us. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview
0: with Pat Lencioni. Again, you can find his book anywhere books are sold, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, plus many other amazing works of his. Also check out tablegroup.com and the podcasts as well. And we'll link to all those in the show notes, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 404. One more time, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 404. And uh, let me know what you think. I hope you enjoyed this. This was a very, very insightful conversation, like I said earlier, and I hope this was helpful for you as well. Whether you are in the Facebook group, smartpassiveincome.com slash community, or elsewhere on the interwebs, Instagram, Twitter, hit me up at Pat Flynn and let me know what you thought of this episode. And if you're building a team, good luck, because it's a struggle and it's one of the most beautiful things that can happen. And I'm thankful to have connected with Pat today to help us all do it even better. So let me know what you think. Thanks so much. Show notes again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 404. And make sure you hit that subscribe button to start the year if you haven't already, because guess what? We have a lot of great conversations coming up in the future and a lot of topics that are very, very important for us growing all of our businesses together, serving more people and making more money as a result. Cheers, take care. Thank you for being a part of Team Flynn. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace.